This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Today I'm going to break down a chapter in The Half Has Never Been Told, titled Seed. In this chapter, Edward Baptist talks about the rape and pillage of black bodies, black women, to produce a new crop of slaves. But he also talks about the seed or the birth of violence among white people um, against not just black bodies, because that had been prevalent in slavery, but against one another. And violence being the underpinning of what it means to be a white man in America. And I think this is profound because today, every day we get up, we see some level of violence in our in our community at the hands of people who are charged with the with the honor to serve and protect, but it's in their DNA, it's in their seed to exact this kind of violence. And I'm gonna tell you about a story written about in this chapter, uh, in the half has never been told. And in it, Edward Baptist writes about a man named Robert Potter, Bob Potter. Bob Potter was born in Granville County, North Carolina around 1800. He was born poor, he was born uneducated. Uh, he grew up envying wealthy, smart people. And actually, he was very smart. He just didn't have an education. And at this time in the South, if you were white and poor and uneducated, you were basically treated just like a black person in bondage. And Potter did not like that. So as a boy, he started making friends. He was very charismatic. Uh, he knew he was a second-class citizen, but he, he was very charismatic, so he made friends with people. And one of the uh, persons that he made friends with was somebody who uh, had a lot of wealth, and he took him under his wing and educated him as he did his children. Because college was for landowners, wealthy landowners. So you wealthy landowners sent their children to college. Uh, so this man tutored him with... Um, didn't send him to college because that was relegated for people who had money. But he tutored him. And through this, he decided, Bob Potter, to run for office. And he lost because the wealthy saw him as dirt. He was a second-class citizen. He didn't deserve to hold office. Office was held by people with money and influence and power, not the dirty, second-class citizen white people. How funny is that? But Potter decided to start to rally the troops. Because imagine, not a lot of people were wealthy landowners. This is the myth. Like, everyone didn't own uh, people. Everyone did, wasn't a slave owner. Um, matter of fact, it was a very small minority of people. And if you think about the framers of the Constitution, and we talked about the founders in an earlier podcast, they were very clever. They built this in, in such a way that the 1% would always be at the top of the food chain making decisions for the rest of us. They didn't factor in that there would be people like a Bob Potter or people like a Shirley Chisholm <laughs> or people like a Barack Obama who would send, or, or people like a Stacey Abrams who would flip the entire paradigm using their own laws and rules to, to change the face and the nature of this nation for the better. Bob Potter, not so much. What Bob Potter brought was a, a wave of violence that is still pervasive today. And as Edward Baptist writes, he, he talks about that there was not a whole lot of violence in Western Europe during this time. But in the South, it was rampant. And it was rampant because what white men who didn't have slaves and who didn't have money and who didn't have influence and power were fighting for was their manhood, and I'm putting up air quotes. To them, 
I don't have money, I don't have power, and, I, and I've always kind of known this. I've said it on the air, on the radio, that you know what white people are fighting for is whiteness, but it's deeper than whiteness. It's deeper than whiteness, because whiteness is a made-up construct, but it was built in, in, in part of the white fight is also about manhood. It's also about manhood, and this is gonna be a tough battle, because you're not gonna separate a divorce a man from the notion of his right to be a man. And in that is being able to take what he wants, being able to do what he wants, not listening or answering to anyone. And that was equated to being a slave. So the very notion that Bob Potter and others like him couldn't do what they want, couldn't be who they wanted in this time, meant that they were no better than a slave and they were gonna distinguish themselves. So whiteness was created to give them something to hold on to, but then the violence galvanized it. Edward Baptist writes, at the most basic level, white people fought and killed each other in the old slaveholding states to prove that they were not slaves. Enslaved men were not allowed to defend their pride, their manhood, or anything else. They had to endure the penetration of their skin, their lives, their families. Therefore, the best way to insult a white man was to treat him like a black man as if he could not strike back. And the best way to disprove that was, the best way to disprove that was to strike back. So in Robert Potter's North Carolina, courts often denied poor white men that right. So if you were a poor white man and you killed or beat up a, poor, uh, a rich white man, you could go to jail just like a black person or worse. But Bob Potter changed all of that because as he was running for office um, and it was stolen from him, the wealthy people conspired to make sure that he wouldn't. He found the person that was at the helm of, of the conspiracy and he cracked his skull. And he also rallied a bunch of people around him so that he was not uh, held accountable for cracking that white man's skull, which was on the books uh, against the law. Edward Baptist writes, rich men were almost never prosecuted for dueling. Poor men involved in less deadly fights could face long jail terms. But Potter's crime was not listed in the books. Now, here's what he also did. All right, so he went on, ran for office, again, ended up winning after he cracked the man's skull. I guess people were afraid of him. He won. He ended up going to Congress. He, had a, he was very popular, and he was rising. He was a rising star, coming from nothing. And that's a, that's a great story, we love it, right? We love to see someone come from nothing. But then he got paranoid, and he thought that his wife, well, he accused his wife of, of cheating on him, committing adultery with both a Methodist minister and a 17-year-old neighbor from a wealthy family. So what Potter did, August 28, 1831, he kidnapped both of these men, he took them into the woods, and then he castrated both of them. I'm a student. I'm a professional. I'm a woman. And I shouldn't have to worry about walking alone, day or night. I've heard it all. Honey, give me a smile. Harmless catcalls? I never know. I carry Tiger Lady. It's a revolutionary defense tool that's based on one of nature's most efficient defenses, a cat's retractable claws. It weighs less than my phone and is designed to collect DNA. Tiger Lady is discreet and fits in my hand. And when I make a fist, claws come out like a real-life Wolverine. It's easy to use. 
doesn't require training and is legal in all 50 states. Get your Tiger Lady today by going to TigerLady.com today. Tiger Lady makes the perfect graduation gift to prepare her for the world ahead. Get Tiger Lady today for safety's sake at TigerLady.com. And for a limited time, get a pack of four at 15% off. Use the code GRAD and save an additional 20% off your entire order. Go to TigerLady.com. That's TigerLady.com. Tiger Lady, the ultimate gift of personal safety for any graduate. What kind of, how strong was he? Because 17, you're kind of like almost a man. And the minister, did he do them? There's some missing information here. Did he take them separately? Did he knock them? Did he grab them? Like this guy had to be kind of badass, right? So he took two men basically into the woods and cut off their, their man parts. And then he released them. Because run, tell that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I took that. Run, tell that. Within a day, Potter was captured, and then uh, he was locked in a cell. But from his cell, he wrote an appeal. And I'm going to read from this because it speaks to where we are today. In his appeal, he explained that he was justified in castrating these two white men, these two honored members of society, as self-defense. He said that they tried to quote, unman me, stabbing me most vitally. They had hurt me beyond all cure. They had polluted the very sanctuary of my soul. He said, they left, they left me the most degraded man in all of Granville, North Carolina. And, and this is so crazy. <laughs> and now he said, I felt that I could no longer maintain my place among men. He said he was disgraced, and, and they put a disgrace upon him that with the blood, with, with the blood of those who had fixed it there, they put this disgrace upon him. So he had no choice, this is what he wrote, other than to take these men out into the woods and cut off their man parts. They had disgraced him at his very core by allegedly sleeping with his wife. Edward Baptist writes, rich men were never prosecuted for dueling. Poor men involved in deadly fights, of course, faced long jail terms. But Potter's crime was not listed in the law books. The most serious charge that the local courts could find to charge him with was maiming, which had a maximum penalty of two years in prison. So then, after this, the state legislature passed a new law punishing future castrations of white men with execution. That's how serious that is. If you castrated a white man, you could be executed. So I I, I pause there because the history in this country of the protection of white malehood is pervasive today. The fight politically in our country, the fight on the streets, the fight in our neighborhoods, gentrification, all, all of these fights stem from a notion of privilege, but also of an entitlement that as a white man in this country, as a white man anywhere in the world, you can do whatever you want. And anyone standing in the way of you doing whatever you want has to be dealt with. I can do whatever I want, I'm a white man. Well, these are things to think about because the world is ever changing. And I think as people grow in their sense of self and sense of their own power and agency, uh, no longer can your rights as a white man supersede my rights as a human being. Mm-mm. No, and if it comes down to it, I'm always gonna side with myself. 
right? The problem is, though, uh, when we talk about politics, particularly in the United States of America, look at who's in Congress. What, you know, look at who's in the state legislators. We're, we're dealing right now um, with state legislators in North Carolina, in Alabama, in Missouri, in, Florida, in Georgia, all throughout this country, mostly men, predominantly men, white men, making decisions about what a woman can do with her body. That's how deep it is because it's their right as a man. I have a right as a man to tell you everything as a white man. Edward Baptist writes, when pistols and dirks were handy, excuse me, when pistols and dirks weren't handy, white men used anything and everything to try to intimidate, humiliate, and kill each other. Teeth, rocks, nails, cowhide whips, canes, pieces of lumber. Letters from the frontier are riddled with shootings, stabbings, cuttings, gougings, horse whippings, and other brutal assaults on, every, on everyone who had the misfortune to meet them. So you didn't even have to do anything. So-and-so had his thumb cut off, this is some writings, in consequence of a bite by Bob Hutchins in the races. He had the impudence to call my wife and mother whores, and I beat him. They will hardly hang a man here for the willful murder, and they do not regard taking the life of a man any more than I would a snake. Violence is also as American as apple pie. Violence at the hands of white men. For every other group that has been labeled a terrorist or brutal or violent, you know, for everybody that's locked their doors when you've seen black people or clutched your purse in an elevator, what we know for sure is that people who kill the most in this world are white men. And it seems to be in their DNA. And it's written about in the half has never been told, the chapter is seed. And I'm, I'm talking about this because in order to eradicate a problem, we have to confront it and we have to call it what it is. And we have to identify it. And the largest problem that I see historically has been the violence of white men. The greatest terrorist in this nation from school shootings, Sandy Hook, Charleston, South Carolina, mosques, synagogues, Columbine, Timothy McVeigh, Oklahoma City, white men, the hotel in Vegas, white men. And they're protecting something that doesn't even really exist because your manhood is not between your legs, and your manhood is not something that, you, that, that, that can be dishonored. You either have it or you don't. And if somebody can so easily disrupt your manhood by sleeping with your wife or, uh, you know, <laughs> or taking something that you think is yours, then how strong is your manhood? I, I, I ask that question. If your manhood could be snatched so easily, in this case of, by a 17-year-old, do you really have manhood? And, and I think that's really the, the thing that's being fought for here, that in, in deep inside you know that you're very weak because very weak people have to show these displays. Very strong, confident people, check out my confidence series, never have to do this. So the goal here is to challenge everybody who comes to you with this kind of violent behavior with the notion, or with the question maybe, let's be Socratic, 
Why are you so weak? Why are you so weak? And what are you afraid of? All right, with that, let me know what you think. You can follow me on Twitter at Karen Hunter. Till next time.